Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next edition of the Sports Pro Streamtime Podcast. My name is Chris Stone, I'm the community lead at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. So, Nick, this weekend was one of the rare weekends where I didn't have football and had no plans. So, I intentionally did absolutely nothing. In doing so, I discovered on Sky Go, you can actually go back and watch the entire um, history series. Um, of Entourage. And I don't know if you ever watched Entourage, Nick, but for me, it was very fundamental in my late teens and early 20s. It was the reason I did a, a master's in sports law. It's the reason I did the lifestyle of an unpaid internship at a sports agency. Um, brought back a lot of feels watching Entourage. Yeah, it's a really good show. I've I've watched that. I watched it when it was on um, back in the day. I guess some people have that uh, Jerry Maguire moment. It used to be uh, termed for quite a while after the the Show Me the Money and uh, the, that that film he did with was a Cuba Gooding Jr. was yep. the the player. Yep. Um, I guess now Ari Gold was the the next version or, or generation of that. Um, and Ari Emanuel still absolutely bossing it uh, in the industry today, making some big deals with the WWE and. Uh, all that major talent. Uh, I still can't. I can't. I can't forget that uh, watching him do an interview on Bloomberg TV on his walking desk treadmill. Uh, I mean, that's that's a whole another level of I'm the man. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely got a, got a lot of uh, love for that show over the, over the years. That's for sure. It feels like a TV show that definitely probably couldn't be made today. Definitely got away with some things uh, back then that, you know, it just probably pushed the, the bounds a little bit too far. Um, but just, yeah, like I said, it was it was great. But, you know, like I said, credit to sports agents. The one thing I left my sports internship feeling was I don't have my own shit personally together well enough to look after somebody else because some <laughs> of the things you'd have to do for these athletes at two, three in the morning or they left their passport at home, uh, basically uh, – they say jump and you say how high and I just, you know, it looks a lot cooler on Entourage than it looks and how it feels in real life. Yeah, well, I'm sure that is the case. I think if you ask any agent, it's not all as glamorous as they make it to be and the show made it to be. For, for what it's worth, we did have Ari Emanuel, so the Ari Gold, um, uh, what the show is based on, or the character is based on, him speak at, I think, year two of Sports Pro Live um, 10, nine years ago. So, um Good to see we set him in the right direction uh, all from, from that point on. So, uh, yeah, interesting. No, I definitely think I'd be interested to see. I had actually that's a, that conversation come up recently where you're looking at all the TV shows and all the media that's created these days, how different even in like five to ten years um, the content would be from where it was ten years ago. Like how how just the dynamic of what 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 people would talk about on the screen has changed would would definitely leave for some different content that's for sure yeah it's weird and then just from the streaming space i remember you used to wait week on week for the new episode of entourage to drop and you know it's only like a 25 minutes maybe 20 minutes per episode you know we just live in this world now of netflix sit there and binge watch everything it's just you know my wife heard the HBO sound come on. She's like, oh, that makes me think of Game of Thrones. And I'm sure there's people that think that, but I was like, before that, whenever I heard the HBO entry, I used to always think Entourage. So it's just, uh, it was a good weekend of doing nothing, feeling a little uh, sort of sentimental back to my youth, thinking of how I was going to go run Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the on, yeah, that on, uh, for what it's worth, I think the, the on demand versus um, the, the anticipation that we used to face is, is such a different dynamic now. Whenever I watch a TV show and I've got a, wait till next week to watch it i just get really annoyed whereas back then it was anticipation 
you know, you're, oh, oh no, I've got to wait till next week. Okay, I can't wait. Now it's just like, oh, this is stupid. Why am I having to wait now? I'm not used to that anymore. Behaviors have changed. Psychology's changed all around the, the world of streaming, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, there's been, it's been quite a while, Nick, since you and I have done an episode, just the two of us to talk about sort of what some of the big news is in the the sports broadcast industry, you know, off the back of Sports for OTT USA, we had a large quantity of content that we wanted to share with people to bring that out. And we've had some really good interviews recently. So we wanted to just take an opportunity to kind of go through some of the news stories that have come up over the last kind of two, three weeks and sort of sort of share how we think those are. Some of them are, you know, on the bigger scale, some of them are on the smaller scale, but all things that we kind of find interesting and where we're going to jump into or where I want to jump into um, is the World Cup and the Women's World Cup coming up later this summer and the threats coming from FIFA pre- President Infanti. Infantino on blacking out the games in the UK, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain for what he has called disappointing rights offers. Uh, I believe he said somewhere that the money that's being um, offered to FIFA are between one and 10 million, where he says the men's tournament was offered between 100 and 200 million uh, for essentially the same event. Now, I don't think it's that black and white. And I also think blacking out the World Cup in the five key European markets is about as dumb as a decision as you could make regardless of whether or not you think the offer is too low but maybe what what's your initial thought when you heard this story oh yeah this one's an interesting one right like if it comes from certain people you might take it a bit in a different take it in a different angle or a different lens but look uh, it's a threat there's no way that they would do this there's no way uh, for a few reasons, not just because it would be mad and put all the hard work that's going to grow in the women's game back an absolute mile if they decided to to do that for whatever reason, whether it's valid or not. Um, but also commercially, FIFA's partnerships at a sponsorship level are largely built around reach and scale of reach. They're not built... Um, yeah, they build around that that whole global play and to start taking away its core audiences for a lot of their major sponsorship partners... Would be would be there'd be zero chance of them accepting that that decision if it was to play out that way. Um, but look, let's let's talk about um, you know this negotiation tactic is, isn't the first time we've seen something like this. Whether it, it be that look we're going to black out a channel, or more more commonly these days is they say we're going to put it on our own OTT platform. So FIFA Plus is obviously there, which is also part of the speculation that they will they will consider broadcasting it live on that instead but what normally happens last minute a deal gets done by someone someone will break someone will maybe negotiate a little bit closer to the mark that one side wants and then the deal will be accepted so I, I don't think this will ever get close to happening but the threat might exist right up until the last sort of remaining days um, just because of FIFA wanting to try and extract as much commercial value out of it and look I get it for, for various reasons but we all know that FIFA's record around around live events and major events and commercial is one that is always going to be met with some skepticism if they play this game. Now, why the question I've heard from people is why is the offer so low if they're as low as what has been suggested? It is super important for for people to understand that the time zones really do matter. Australia and New Zealand are in the worst time zones for major sporting events in the world for for events in, uh, for this country anyway for, and for western european markets so if you've got bad time zones what does that normally mean well the time zone means less viewers less viewers means less attractive to advertisers 
and the economics just don't play out as well. And it's, it is as simple as that. Now, the question is, how much does that scale relative to the offer? But there's no way in this competitive landscape that we've got with streaming players left, right and centre coming into the market and looking for opportunity and looking for needle-moving opportunities to drive audiences, drive advertising opportunities and, and of course, drive subscriptions, that there wouldn't be a, a captive market bidding for these rights. But I, I just think there's a gap in expectations versus, you know, no commercial leader these days wants to see their, the revenues dip. But by having the games in Australia and New Zealand, they have really made it almost near impossible f- to extract the same broadcast revenues as they would have if they were in the Western European markets or the US or alike. And I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, it feels like one of those situations where multiple things can all be true at the same time. We can sit yeah. here and say women's sports is undervalued. Yes, absolutely. But we can also say, is it as simple as just match the men's offer? Well, it's it's not that simple. That That's a that's not nearly what it is as you start talking about different things in terms of just audience reach, time zones. Like We can accept that both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah, I think that, that's that's pretty well said. So for me, look, it will get broadcast. It won't be blacked out. Will they maybe keep some rights to put them on FIFA Plus? Possibly. You know, if they're not getting the offers that they're hoping for, there's there's a, there's an opportunity to do that if they wanted to to again drive awareness of its own platforms. And if the economics aren't balancing up, as they say, but I just think it'll be back to you business as usual. And when the event comes around, it'll be on one of the major free to air or a multitude of free to air broadcasters when when time comes and um, push comes to shove. It feels like it shouldn't even be an either or between free to air or their own platform, but just both. You know, if if the plays reach and you're talking about a, a sport that maybe doesn't uh, have enough value to be an exclusive deal, why you aren't you're just doing both? That's what I would think to do. But uh, you know, I'm not in charge. As I said, the, I do think the commercial model plays a huge role there. Um, that 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 the partners wouldn't be up for having uh, their stuff behind a paywall and and going co. You know, if you start to go uh, non-exclusive, free-to-air broadcasters who are targeting advertising dollars will not be up for that. They will want exclusivity still if they're paying anything of substance for those rights. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But if they aren't getting the offers, then they can be more creative with what they do with those rights. That's for sure. So a story that was probably more prominent over here in the UK, but something that was also covered in the Sports Pro podcast. If you want to go check that out, they go through some different detail, but perhaps we'll look at it more specifically from the streaming perspective and the impact it has there is the new deal that's been set between the EFL, which is basically the the leagues just below the Premier League here in the UK and what they've just signed with Sky Sports, which is now going to see that deal be set at 935 million pounds, which represents a 50% increase on the deal that they currently have. But really what's going to be different about this is they're now going to show more than a thousand matches per season, which is actually, according to the numbers through Sports Pro, is a 335% increase of the actual amount of matches that were previously shown. So there's still there's a couple of different things to it, but I think the biggest one is obviously it does represent a an uplift in finance, but more than anything, it's an incredibly dramatic swing in terms of the amount of footage people will be able to now have, whether that's through Sky's linear channels or through their streaming platforms. But then interestingly, from a streaming perspective, will be the end of iFollow, which is what EFL had sort of set up. So I don't know where you specifically you want to jump in on this, Nick, but it is something that's a, that's a big story here in the UK. Yeah, for sure. And it is one that I think everyone should really look at in the industry, wherever you are, because of the dynamics of uh, the marketplace and also the dynamic of the relationship and the shift 
to go much more with a broadcast partner. Um, you mentioned I follow, and, and look, I would definitely recommend listening to Tom and George on the Sports Red podcast and their breakdown of it. It's really extensive and, and t- gets into the numbers pretty pretty heavily as well. The iFollow product will exist, but only for international audiences. So that's an important sort of differentiation. So Wrexham can rest easy. They'll still be able to sell their um, their access to their US fans and fan bases over over there. Well, look, what it, what it does, it gives Sky all the control and all the power, um, but they have the, the, the power, the technology, the reach that is such an enabler for for the EFL. So again, you know, the prim- the championship, League One and League Two, um, those collective group of leagues, to give them access and reach they would never get anywhere else. And there was some speculation as to whether DAZN or maybe Viaplay and others would be in for those rights. But this is really the best of both worlds for, for both the EFL and for Sky. They still keep that 3 p.m. blackout, um, which they reported that it could cost um, the leagues, I think was it, 40 million or so they didn't define what time frames that would be so that's a bit of a weird number to just throw out there but it gives you know it gives sky all the control the power becomes the home the destination of football in in the uk they were already solid with that before but now there's literally nowhere else you would go especially if they hold on to those premier league rights is the number one uh, football uh, platform so sky's dominance in the uk has just become all that more greater but the bit that's sort of getting lost by all of the mainstream media is, yes, the 50, there's a 50% uplift in the rights value. But all of those extra games are now wrapped into a streaming proposition for Sky, meaning their per game value is dramatically lower than what it was before. And so by having all their eggs in the Sky basket, I'm not saying that's a bad move. I think it's a pretty smart one. But they diffuse, sort of, they take away some of the competitive tension that might have existed if DAZN was going to make a play seriously. Um, if I play and those other guys were actually going to come and, and try and have a crack at disrupting this football market, because without football, you can't be a legitimate sports broadcaster. Like let's let's be honest, in a, in a particular market, you can't be serious um, unless you really majorly overinvest into every other sports property that exists. So for me, it's just, yeah, the breadth of games is, is insane, is massive, 1,000 games a, a season that's going to be broadcast and available through Sky. The amount of games that are available, it's really good. There's still that 3 p.m. blockout that exists. And fundamentally, what that means is they're still going to be facilitating piracy for those games with, it, with, it, with the blackout still in play. So, yeah, look, it's a fascinating deal. I think Sky and EFL do win quite heavily from this. Um, but it still feels like maybe not in this cycle, but in the future by segmenting those rights that they've wrapped up into the Sky deal and maybe finding another broadcast partner might have been a way of just extracting more value um, out of those media rights as a whole down the line. Well, one, you mentioned DAZN and that's kind of an angle I wanted to look at specifically, which is one of the things that was reported with DAZN is they wanted to stream all matches, which would mean the end uh, of the blackout period, which runs from 2.45 p.m. till 3.15 p.m. Uh, do you think part of the reason the EFL went with Sky is because there was already existing relationship there and there was a large enough number up in front that it was just easy to get it done and dusted? Or do you think there was hesitancy around the blackout rule that they didn't necessarily want to, to get into that? You know, And then I guess 
after that question as a follow-up, how big of a loss of this is for DAZN? It's obviously not the Premier League, but we're talking about a thousand matches broadcast a season. That's a hell yeah. of a lot of content. Yeah, good question. I would say uh, a few bits in there. I would say one is Sky, I've said this before in the pod, but Sky is in such a dominant position, Sky Sports. I, I, it must be one of the most dominant sports broadcasters in a, in a single market in the world. Definitely got to be out there. I'm sure there's other markets where there's 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 other like for likes, but this one is, is as prominent as they come. So they can play a really impressive or complex game around negotiation tactics because they have such a, a weight behind them with their marketing and their ability to, to do the storytelling in between matches that if they said we're not going to buy these rights off of the EFL, the EFL would be in big trouble. I don't see, I don't really believe anyone was willing to pay a billion dollars, for, billion pounds for those rights uh, or anywhere near it if this guy said they were going to walk away. So they kind of, I'd say, force EFL, would have forced EFL's hand to accept the lion's share of that deal. And then Sky would have also been to say, but look, we ain't going to take this if you're going to sell the majority of those other rights and unlock that 3 p.m. window. Because if you get rid of the 3 p.m. window, all of those other time slots become less valuable to sky so sky would never pay the same value for those rights that they would have otherwise and that is the important bit in this sky will never push for the 3 p.m blackout uh, unless they're going to get a major discount on all their games uh, and they will never push for it because that means more competitors might come in and take up take up those rights as well so sky were in a, were in a great position to to be the to dictate terms really for this and the fact they didn't have to go down the the, the rabbit hole of negotiating on the 3 p.m block blackout made it easier for efl to give the green light to and so it was pretty rudimentary deal in the end for them to to agree i mean sure it was complex but in terms of once they said they would do this sort of level of money there was very little chance they were going to go down the political rabbit holes of trying to negotiate removal of the 3 p.m blackout this cycle because this is their first move to like going with a broadcast partner for streaming rights so to, to the question about the zone look i don't think it's not whenever you lose these rights in terms of if your objective is just to grow in a market it doesn't help um i can and the reason they probably didn't want to really put a serious bid in or a bid at scale that would disrupt sky in this instance because it's a, it, it would be a big risk um but without football again in this country how are they going to ever position themselves as a major player uh, in the UK, if that's if that is a real motivation for them, and the question is, do they really need it? But the only time they can go after football again will be the Premier League's rights, and these this next cycle will be the most competitive we've seen, I think, in at least twelve years. So therefore, uh, I think you, they'll be struggling to to become a serious player in in the UK around football rights, unless they're really just so ready to throw them at the kitchen sink at those rights to to get a seat at the table for the next cycle. I'll get my popcorn ready. So moving on to the next one, interesting uh, conversation came up and not maybe necessarily that it was a surprise, but just because it's been formally officially said, which was ESPN chairman Jimmy Vitaro 
said the network is working to some point in the future shift to a full direct-to-consumer model. Uh, not that it's a question of if they'll do it, but just a question of when they're going to do it. And, you know, he didn't put any timelines to that, didn't say it was going to be happening this year, next year, but just simply that when it got to a point that it made sense for the business to do it at the bottom line, they would make that shift over. Um, you know, very interesting given ESPN is such a massive staple of the American sports landscape. But it, like I said, it's not that it's a surprise. It's more just now that it's being said and it sparked some controversy. Our, our friend Patrick Craig's had quite a few things to say about it on LinkedIn and Twitter, as did other people. And, you know, you'd given some thoughts on it as well. What do you think when you sort of hear this news or if you think there's a proposed timeline or if this is just kind of saying something but actually not really saying anything? Yeah, I think it's more the, the latter there. Uh, look, I think we all know that streaming is is becoming the heart and soul of the industry's consumption in the US, especially where it is moving at a pretty rapid rate. Outside of the US, it is a different ballgame. It's moving much slower um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, the beauty of where they've set themselves up now, just for ESPN, is they have complete flexibility. They've now got a scaled audience on ESPN+. Plus. They now have that continue to have the income coming in from cable, and they can just ebb and flow and all the deals they've been doing from a media rights perspective have had that um, sort of tri-cast approach where they can decide they've bought flexibility basically to be able to broadcast on ESPN's main channels on ESPN plus uh, or across ABC as the free-to-air um, broadcast platform they also own through Disney so it just gives them great flexibility to work out what they want to do as they go along and ebb and flow with it and be smart and try new things. They can try a few games here to try and push some audiences to ESPN Plus without having to overcommit for a number of years to that strategy. So it's just a, it's just a reassurance for me that that's still the plan, that there's no great change in uh, approach. You know, Some of the, the thoughts are that, you know, will we see Disney Plus become the centralized home where ESPN sits within that? Um, Hulu's coming, looking to come into their platform, which is another one of Disney's uh, platforms that does incredibly well as ad supported. Um, or will they just stay as a standalone product for for the forever in a day, or something in between? So, look, that that's that's more interesting um, storyline for me is if that starts to play out. And the fact that they're bringing Hulu into Disney, uh, Disney's core um, streaming proposition is really interesting. Um, just to one thing to watch. Um, but in terms of ESPN eventually going streaming first, is it inevitable? Yeah, but they can do it whenever they want to, basically whenever the economics work for them. And for now, they can just ride that wave for, for near, uh, forever in a day. So in the, some of the data that came out in the article was that ESPN is currently available in 74 million households. Now, it sounds like a lot, but that's actually down from 100 million 10 years ago, which will be a result of cord cutting and everything else that we've seen. But ESPN Plus, as you mentioned, has a healthy audience base of, I think it's just under 25 million subscribers. It's like 24.9 million. Now, what it said was for every paying cable subscriber, whether or not they want ESPN, they're getting $10 a month, whereas an ESPN Plus subscription costs $9.99 per month. Now, one of the things you talk about making it work out on the bottom line is with the latter, that ESPN Plus subscription, they're also having to pay for some of the technology stack behind that. They're having to do their own marketing. Then there's the customer service if things don't work that you don't have to pay when you're working with just sort of the traditional linear broadcast that they're doing. For you, Nick, do you think that there's a particular price point? And, you know, like I said, that's uh, a question probably everyone's asking where, where that does make sense. Because at the moment you're getting 
essentially $10 either way, but one of them comes with more other costs. And I think you and I have talked about this. I don't say I think. I know you and I have talked about this. We think ESPN Plus for $9.99 a month is probably one of the best values in sports period. But, you know, at the moment, they don't have all their premium stuff on there compared to what's on their linear channels. At some point, they're going to move that over. They're going to have to increase the price. But just sort of where you think that eventually matches up. Yeah, well, the other benefit the streaming gives them, it gives them the flexibility to move the pricing as well. So with the co- those cable deals, I don't, I'm not an expert in that space, but I'm pretty sure that if you start playing around, you can't just move your pricing and that that carriage arrangement. You have to negotiate those with your your various pet cable providers and partners. Whereas on streaming, you dictate the terms, you manage the marketing relationships, you do everything yourself. So if they want to j- crank up the price because they've made a major investment into certain sports rights or start splicing and dicing uh, or creating new packages of, you know, think about uh, ESPN might want to create an NFL only product or uh, an NBA only product if they want to. They can do that on their own whim, but they can't do that through cable. So I, I, I would just see that starting to play out over time as they can't become a little bit more creative with um, you know, some of their packages and, and um, subscription propositions to give them best flexibility and best ways to, to drive more value out of those. Whereas the, with the cable relationship is is a great business, but economically will, will not exist in the same way um, uh, as it has for, in, the, in, the near, in the not so near future and near future. So yeah, I, I think just the flexibility that they're able to dictate terms. I think by and large streaming will be effectively a lot cheaper for them once you know where they are now to, to run that. Um, and they, they're one of the first broadcasters to tr- really lean into cloud-based production at scale. So they're going to keep c- cutting costs. And you've obviously seen they've been cutting a lot of costs recently with a, a whole host of layoffs, thousands and thousands of people being laid off. So they are very much on the cost-cutting uh, stage in place now. Uh, ironically, though, they apparently are in for Pat McAfee, um, which would probably not come at a uh, cheap price if they uh, brought his talent into the into the game but that's a whole different different story altogether not with some of the numbers i'm seeing thrown around there but moving from one streaming sports site to another and one that i think is quite interesting and you had shared this story with me and i think it's also interesting because we you'd had the opportunity to speak to marie donahue at amazon was as they've come out and announced some new ways moving forward into the 2023 nfl season talking about how people will be able to advertise for Thursday night football as a part of Amazon prime streaming. Uh, there's a couple different things there where now they're going to give people the ability to truly segment those audiences in terms of different custom creatives based on geography or different demographics behaviors to be able to really give that, I guess, really uh, personalized advertising experience as you're trying to go through there. But then also something that specifically Marie talked about, which was not jamming e-commerce down people's throats when they're watching this Thursday night football is a new sort of push notification setting that if you're using any Fire TV devices and you see an ad that you like, instead of having to leave the platform and disrupt your streaming, you can now actually, I think, sound like they're using QR codes or something where you'll be able to send that ad to your phone or to your email. So that way you can go back and find that product later on. So it was a good find by you, but it was just a really interesting sort of follow-up to when we heard from Marie about how Amazon's going to look to incorporate more uh, e-commerce into their platform. And they specifically talked about this in reference to the NFL's first Black Friday game coming up this year. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to finally hear a bit more on this because we've been expecting it. 
you know, we've been waiting for the moment that Amazon would really turn the taps on with regards to e-commerce. And even when I did speak to Marie um, a couple of months ago now, um, yeah, she was so obviously opinionated about the the importance of of not disrupting that viewing experience. But now they're going to lean into it. You know, Black Friday being all about e-commerce is a great time to do it. So just a really shrewd move by Amazon to acquire and do that deal with the NFL to, to own Black Friday, so to speak. And this technology is, it is pretty mad that, you know, we're still at a place where advertising can't be that personalized in the live, live streaming experience at scale like this. So for the fact that they are, um, they are making this move, I think everyone will be watching because this is, this is one of those moves that I do think is the enabler that everyone is looking for. You know, they've been looking at NFTs and looking at um, cross-selling across other platforms and trying to drive average revenue per user up. Well, as we've said before, Nick, if anybody's going to be able to solve some of the difficulties and problems that we've had in OTT and streaming, it's likely to be someone like Amazon with deep pockets and sort of an existing tech infrastructure to be able to do that. But if we switch over from talking about advertising um, and what Amazon's doing, we can also kind of take a look on the other side, which is looking at fast channels, something that you and I have been sort of kind of highlighting as something we think is going to be something that's going to play a prominent role in the future. And we had a couple of news stories over the last couple of weeks, both talking talking about fast channels, one of them being over here uh, in Europe, primarily talking about DAZN and the two fast channels they've launched, uh, DAZN Combat and DAZN Women's Football. You know, this is going to be a a combination of live coverage, highlights, archive programming, and original content. Uh, There's also going to be different things for DAZN, how this leverages into their reach play, given what they've done with Amazon Prime, as well as launching a linear channel on Sky. But then we look over towards the U.S. market. We've also seen that DraftKings is now going to be the first betting operator to launch a 24-7 fast channel. So, this is really interesting, Nick, something that we've talked about as a trend that we think is going to continue to rise. But what do you take from these two different news stories, both around the same sort of technology? Well, I think there's a couple of things, but the main part of this is to define again, like what fast is not that it's the free ad supported television platform, but more how it sits and operates and what role it fits within a broadcaster's kind of playbook. And the way I look at it in, in real, real simple terms is it's an enabler for those media rights that aren't um, that absolute tier one sets of rights that they can still reach and gain a scaled audience but are going to be going getting in front of people that maybe aren't that tier one passionate fan base if you're talking about a sales and marketing funnel you're talking about not the top the pointy end of the of the of the funnel you're not talking necessarily the, the super top end where people might discover them on a linear channel where they're not even looking looking for sport but that, that next tier below where people are actively looking for some sports to watch or don't really know what to watch fast can be a super powerful product for the sports industry to be looking at and considering what I, what I like about this is obviously they, 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 they're taking sort of a specific product approach or a specific sports approach. I'm not going to try and say archive programming uh, like you did. Oh, well, I did. Difficult. There you go. Yeah, yeah, I had to take a big pause there for my tongue-twisting uh, escapades in, in Aussie. But the, you know, look, I think Fast gives them a reach. It gets them uh, gives them an opportunity to bring more of their, their rights to life because sometimes if you rely upon a streaming app platform a bit like the zone do there's a risk that some of those sports rights may not get seen nearly as much or be be stumbled across 
like they would on linear channels. And that's where Fast can play a pretty good role for them. Uh, it, it generates a new revenue stream by opening up uh, ad, ad dollars. And one of the things to, to be aware of within the Fast world is I don't know the real nitty gritty, but what I do know about Fast is there's a pretty heavy rev share, revenue share component with advertising. So anything that's being broadcast on one of the connected TVs and operating systems that they have will be under a rev share arrangement. So that means that the advertising revenue they will be taking on those platforms will be not at the same, say, percentages on their CPMs, but will be getting the reach play that those connected devices can bring to the table. So I think you're just going to continue to see more and more of these sports. I know from talking to some of the connected TV players, they're really excited by having more and more sports on their platforms. I think it will make their platforms more of a destination. Um, what's interesting about connected TVs generally is talking, one of the conversations I've had is they're not really regulated yet. So linear TV, so the broadcasting, free-to-air broadcasting world is very highly regulated in countries like the UK where, you know, there's X amount of hours they need to show of X um, different types of content. You know, they could be religious, it could be educational, it could be news, all those things. But the connected TV world is largely a fairly unregulated by in comparison. And so they're kind of waiting for that to happen. But for now, they can do what they like, which allows them to get crafty as well with the relationships they have to see what sports partnerships and deals can do. So yeah, I think you're only going to see Fast play a bigger a bigger role in sports content. Super good platform for those tier two, three sports that need reach and want another place to do it and can't get a deal done with linear TV. And on the DraftKings relationship specifically, what's I think super exciting about someone like them doing it or a no-brainer really is if they can run a fast platform like that as a even just a break-even sort of model one of the big challenges these betting firms have is their margins and the costs of acquisition of audiences and the cost of marketing just full stop they they've thrown the kitchen sink at marketing across the sports industry over the last few years um and this could become a way of generating an audience base for people who are sports fans and possibly interested in gambling and fantasy and so forth and do it at a level that doesn't really cost them if they can get the economics right. Because there's an advertising component in there, they'll be able to generate extra money quite easily um, because the way fast can be enabled through um, the different tech vendors and the, the connected TV relationships. Like I can't imagine DraftKings gets onto some of the major connected TV platforms without having the advertising uh, model agreed with those platforms to generate significant revenue. Otherwise, there's too much interest in Fast to be taken up by platforms that aren't going to share the love and share the wealth. So yeah, it's a good play for DraftKings. Um, and it, I think it'll, it'll ultimately end up to them saving a lot of money in terms of reach to reaching audiences and foster a relationship with fans that um, are really interested in what they have to offer. Yeah, I thought one of the other interesting things from the DraftKings side was who's going to be involved with that. So that includes Dan Levitard, who is also a part of or one of the investors or key faces when it comes to Metal Arc Media. Um, and my understanding from those initial reports is that there's going to be other content uh, produced shows by Metal Arc Media. So that's obviously been 
you know, kind of led also by our John Skipper, you know, his history with ESPN and everything else. So it is kind of interesting, just some of the names that are involved there and perhaps some of the type of content uh, that may play a part of that. You know, as you say, it's expensive to acquire live rights, but if you can get people like Levitard and I imagine some of the other content they're going to create there, uh, then it's going to be interesting to see what that output actually looks like in terms of that uh, those TV shows. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I'm looking forward to seeing how much they throw at this. Um, you know, Fangio were one of the big investors and sponsors a whole host of sports related content uh, and sponsor the Pat McAfee show, which we mentioned earlier to the tune of, was it like 30 million a year? I think it's the partnership. So big, huge numbers that they're throwing, uh, throwing at this. I think this is a smart move for them to, to get reach, um, build brand credibility and um, who knows, build a pretty viable business if they get the, the economics right. Yeah. So moving on to another interesting sort of media publisher is Barstool Sports. They're never short of uh, news and highlights in terms of just who's involved with the business. But something that came up was they are now going to be exclusively live streaming coverage of the Corn Ferry Tour on Barstool TV. Now, I have to admit, Nick, I had to look up what that particular tournament was, but it looks like it's sort of a up and coming golf tournament as a way to identify who might be the next generation of who's who's in the golf world. But more importantly, I guess, to this actual story is talking about Barstool kind of taking their next step into live streaming. Uh, they had previously live streamed the Arizona Bowl, which is part of college football and their whole bowl game series. And I believe it had something about 130,000 concurrent viewers, and they reportedly had 1 million views in total. And it's interesting as well, the way this dynamic is going to work with the PGA Tour. Um, as I understand it, the PGA Tour will be lending its expertise in terms of staff and technology and equipment whereas the actual content side of things will be led by Barstool. So I just think it's an interesting play. We obviously have had people from Barstool involved with our events before, and we've spoken about them and sort of the the media business that they are and how they're kind of finding some of these niche opportunities to get involved in live streaming. And then obviously there's kind of where they've been involved in the gambling space. They're just kind of, they're doing all kinds of things, Nick. They don't stop trying, uh, trying and testing stuff. That is for sure. Look, I, I think it's a really interesting one to follow because for a couple of reasons. One, anything Barstool does needs to be watched and watched closely. They have enabled a whole new generation of sort of sports fans that, and a whole new com- sorry community of sports fans that I think were largely neglected or negated in previous circles when with the traditional broadcasters. But moving into the live game, as we know, is hard. You can see on my shirt here, if you can see there, streaming live sports is not easy.com. Thanks to Carlo DeMarcus for the, the shirt here. So Barstool moving into the live sports game more and more means you're going to be coming, you're playing a different ball game. You're, you're playing a riskier game. But I do think Barstool's relationship with golf is a really interesting one. If you look at some of the content they've been creating over the years and the different shows, they are really trying to talk to that younger generation of golf fans. I don't want to bring the Live Golf GPGA Tour comparison play in here a little bit about, you know, Live Golf's trying to position themselves to that younger generation and the party and so forth. But that's kind of what Barstool's been doing for quite some time in terms of targeting that younger generation that maybe likes golf and likes what it's about, but doesn't want to lean into that so look i think it'll be very interesting to see how innovative they are with the broadcast proposition you know we talked about amazon before i remember talking to marie donahue and they were so afraid of trying too many things in the broadcast to try and change that experience in the initial phases because they wanted the fans to be comfortable with with that transition to the streaming product 
Barstool are not Amazon, and I could definitely see them trying to do some different and crafty things. So it's a nice place to be able to play with a developmental league, which I'll have the same challenges in terms of creating enough content to support that. But I reckon they've just probably done that deal and they're going to work it out as they go along rather than having some really deep you know, strategy on how they're going to broadcast the, the matches as, as they happen or the, the rounds. So, look, has to be just one for us to keep an eye on to see how what they do and how different it is to the existing um, establishment or on how you broadcast live golf today. But one, one to follow, that's for sure. Yeah, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but when I go ahead and shamelessly plug myself and say, if you haven't listened to the NFL podcast we did a few weeks back, uh, both John and Blake from YouTube and from NFL both talked about one of the things that they're looking to do with YouTube TV and just in general is getting more influencers involved. It's that idea of this content's already being broadcast, but how many ways can you broadcast it in a different means? I think Pete Scott was the one that actually talked to us about what interests him the most is how many ways can you serve the same piece of content over and over. And, you know, at the NFL, they've got things like the Manning cast. And, you know, this is just an interesting way Barstool could have their own spin on that. And, you know, I think if you're particularly going for those younger audiences, it's almost kind of a, I wouldn't say risk-free way of doing it, but certainly, you know, Barstool attracts those types of audiences in terms of age and demographic and certainly golf needs about as much help as it can there to get those types of people in yeah but look look, look honestly what Barcelona have been doing on on the golf front and they are leading the way um digitally their fan their fans are super into their content across social media and Barcelona's channels so i think it's a really smart move just to see what happens and it probably didn't cost them an arm and a leg to do it so uh fair play to them let's see what happens next so switching over to more of a well, what used to be, a, I think, more of a strategy-based conversation, but it's now going to be shifting into a bit more of a technology conversation as a company we've been following and talked about quite some bit, which is Buzzer. They really came onto the scene as being this disruptive company for individuals that, you know, hey, I don't want to pay for the full subscription of NFL Game Pass or NBA League Pass. But hey, if you tell me my favorite team is in a one point game and there's only 60 seconds left and I can pay a dollar just to watch that last minute, well, that's a very interesting proposition. And that was what Buzzer was enabling people to do. You know, they had deals with the NBA, the NHL, the ATP. And it was just a really interesting way to almost introduce microtransactions. Mm. Um, that you see in video gaming and other areas into the sports broadcasting space. But it seems like they're now going to be shifting that sort of from their own platform to more being a technology platform working with people. Uh, so, Nick, I don't know if this is something you felt maybe was always inevitable the way that they would end up going or if you just have any particular thoughts. We obviously know Bohan and, you know, big fans of his and, you know, think whatever direction he's leading them, you know, there's a good uh, business opportunity behind it. Yeah, look, I've always been skeptical on the uh, their approach. But I love the concept of what they've tried to do. And I, there's a lot to like about what they, they've done and what they offer in this sort of um, not just the whole concept of offering access to platforms that are um, in those fourth quarter moments or those moments where you want to drive people to it. But just it's always felt like it's a, it's a B2B product. Uh, for me, it's never felt – it's something that needs to be integrated into an existing platform and not, not trying to create its own sort of semi-standalone uh, offering. Um and so I thought this this move was inevitable, but I'm not sure that was actually the original plan because everyone has always wanted to build their own their own castle and make everyone come to them. And I'm guessing that was the original game plan. I did listen to a podcast with Michael Spirito on Are You Not Entertained? Actually, with Roger um, Roger Mitchell and, and team, 
And they were adamant that that was part of they needed to prove their wares to the NBA and alike before they could go down this this channel or this avenue. Um, but really, I'm not so sure. You could have just done that directly over the last few years rather than play this card. Um, so maybe they were ready for the pivot if needed rather than it was uh, a big uh, change in direction. Um, but one I welcome and suggest they're going to do really, really well because they're ticking all the boxes. They're engaging with younger fan groups. They're creating new opportunities that all these these major leagues are looking for. Uh, and every broadcaster could basically work with them. So yeah, big opportunity for them to to be able to grow their business, but they'll have to take a completely different approach in terms of how they go to market now. So that's going to be interesting to follow and see, that's for sure. Yeah, like you said, it'll be interesting. It's a great, to me, it's a great idea, great concept. It's almost like uh, NFL Red Zone on steroids in terms of just being able to catch the biggest moments. Now, one last story, Nick, that kind of snuck in here that we were going to talk about last minute is around bringing up Sky again, but talking about Sky Deutschland and their relationship with Formula One. And it's come out that they're now going to be having two races from the F1 series that are now going to be on their digital platforms and being free to air via YouTube. Now, this is an interesting story. Obviously, they've paid a lot of money to have those rights, but now they're pushing that out to free to air. And, you know, just for me, anecdotally, I mentioned this to you in the background, Nick, was I actually spoke to someone uh, at the Austrian Bundesliga, and I learned something from a historical perspective. Um, apparently, Austria and Germany, for a long time, from a government perspective, legal perspective, did not allow pay TV. It used to all be kind of state-run, and they were actually the two of the last markets in Europe that actually allowed pay TV to even enter into the ecosystem. So he was trying to explain to me that actually historically Austria and Germany in that region aren't overly um, keen to spend money or is likely to do so as an American market or UK marketplace. So maybe that's why Sky Deutschland is apparently up for sale. I don't know, but it's, it's interesting with some of the rumors we've seen or at least I think it's interesting. And now there's this development that they're now going to be showing two races free to air. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense as to why the market has had some challenges in driving um, significant audiences and revenue through pay TV networks and channels. Um, so that would that would explain a lot because it's a pretty it's a it's a, a behavior that's only really been in place for for a short term. But look, the Sky Deutschland in, deal is interesting. It's not the first time we've seen this, but basically there is still a requirement for some of the races, I think it's up to four per season, need to be made available free to wear. But the difference here is they're using YouTube to be the free to wear service. And I think that's a really important thing because also positions, that means that everyone has to agree to that. And that means I think that at a at a governmental level, that's also agreed to if that's the, the regulations that they're having to follow. So it's interesting to see that YouTube can be acting as that free to wear channel. We have seen that already in markets like the UK, where BT Sport broadcast for several years, the Champions League final on YouTube, as well as other platforms as well. Um, uh, so their own platforms, plus I think they also put something on linear uh, networks as well. Um, but there's nothing nothing too major to this other than I just think it's interesting to see that they are having to use YouTube in this way. Um, look, there's there's also the, some great benefits for them to do it. You know, and from a marketing standpoint, by publishing these races live on YouTube, they'll then be able to remarket them and try to make sure that they can target those fans to subscribe to their respective channels and drive them to potentially subscribe to the Sky's premium product 
or F1s um, as a result of reaching those new audience bases and learn a bit more about the audiences that are engaging with their content given the breadth of data you can get through YouTube and alike about your demographics. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Even if it wasn't a requirement, I could see why they might consider it. But because it's a requirement, then all why not leverage the value out of it as much as possible? Absolutely. Well, everybody, that was our wrap of some of the news stories that we thought were coming up, things that we will certainly continue to follow over the coming months to see how some of those things work out. If there are any news stories you think are interesting or you'd like to hear our opinion on, you know, Nick and I have said it before and we'll just keep banging the drum. Uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it is you think. Tag us in a post, tag us in a tweet. Uh, always happy to kind of give our thoughts on the space, but it's been a while since we've done one of these and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things happening. So it's good to just be able to kind of talk through some of them one by one. It seems they're getting more and more complex all the time, Chris, making it making us have to work a little bit harder these days to prepare for these types of things. But uh, yeah, good time to be getting back together and chatting about some of the, the complex deals happening right now. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast. Bye.